2 Samuel chapters 1 through 5, the main topic that we're going to talk about this morning is about calling, about God's call for your life. It gets to a larger question about what's God's will for your life. I think there's different stages in your life where you ask that question. Sometimes you, you have the midlife crisis time when you ask that question. Sometimes at retirement, you can ask that question. Sometimes when you're a kid, you can ask that question. What, God, what should I do with my time? What should I do with my emotional energy? What kind of plans should I make? And really, the, the issue of calling is uh, asking that question. God, what's your will for my life? And uh, I don't mean to disappoint, but I can tell you that this is not, the text is not going to put us in a place where we can, we can answer the question, how do you find your calling? That'll be another sermon for another day. The, the text here does not justifiably point us to that topic. How do I know what God's will is for my life? But I can tell you, like sermon before the sermon, um, that there is a general will of God that's revealed in Scripture. There's a general will for all believers. If you read through the word and, and for Christians to know Jesus and to live their lives differently, there's a general will that all of us have as Christians. And then there's like, by God's grace, a specific will for our lives where God has called you to be a school teacher or to be a mom or to, to be an engineer or whatever, uh, or to be a friend to certain people. And God guides and directs your path and provides for you in that process. So if, uh, if you want a tip up front about how to discern that calling, I can tell you my personal leaning, and this is not necessarily uh, God speaking, this is like Mike speaking, um, and if you do the general will of God, the rest of it is just icing on the cake. Like if you focus in your life, if you're in that phase of life where you're saying, I don't know what God wants me to do with my work or with my relationships or whatever, if you focus on doing what you know is God's will in your life, and then you sprinkle onto it, uh, a little bit of like wisdom, a little bit of psychological self-awareness, a little bit of advice from other people that you trust, um, then generally speaking, just do what you want. Do the general will of God, sprinkle in a little bit of wisdom, and then the rest of it, just do what you want. You want to become an engineer? Become an engineer. You want to go to UCLA? Uh, then go to UCLA. Um, and I think that is a, you're in the ballpark of God's will. So that was a sermon before the sermon. Uh, we're not talking about how to discern that calling. We're talking about how to stick with the calling that God has given you in your life, general and specific. So in the courtyard, I asked you, uh, when you were a kid, what did you want to do when you grew up? Does anyone have like an interesting one that you kind of just go, I'm looking for audience input here. What did you guys talk about? What did you want to be uh, when you were a kid? What did you want to be when you grew up? Anybody? Uh, that's a good one. Anybody else? I'm going to start calling on people if you don't. Veterinarian. Veterinarian, that's a good one. Anyone else? I wanted to be a stand-up comedian when I was a kid. And uh, <laughs> I remember somebody at one point was like, dude, no one gets your joke, so you should pick a different career. <laughs> Even still. Okay, so, um, yeah, God has a calling and a will for your life. Another way to ask this question, by the way, about your calling is, um, I've heard people say, uh, ask the question, if you knew you would never fail, what would you do with your life? If you knew there was no chance of failure and it would turn out for success, what would you do with your time and with your money and with your emotional energy? Chances are those are the types of things that God is pushing you towards if you do God's general will. But David shows us in his life, in the first five chapters of 2 Samuel, if you have God, a, a God who has a will for you and he is sovereign and he has created you for a purpose, which we do see in Scripture, then you have to, in your will, stick to that calling. 
And so David shows us three things, that you can stay true to God's calling in your life if you trust in God's plan for salvation, test your motives in all circumstances, and target obstacles with courage. And if you do those three things, like David does in this passage, then you can stay true to, stick with, be on the path for God's calling in your life, general and specific. So let's jump in to a discussion on how to follow God's calling in your life through what David shows us in uh, his life. Trusting in God's plan for salvation is an important first step to understanding that God is worth following and that he has that will for your life and you can stick to it. In the first five chapters, the author is clearly making the point that um, God is unfolding his plan to save Israel through David. David becoming king is directly linked to God saving Israel. And then as you read the book of 2 Samuel, you find in chapter 7 that Israel's salvation, Israel's preservation is directly linked to a Messiah that would come and would save the world. So now we're not just talking about a few different people who are following God and who know God. And it's just God's chosen people and it's a small group of people. God is unfolding a plan for salvation for the entire world through David's life. And you find that out. The author of 2 Samuel that's describing the account of David's life is showing you, and you can imagine yourself being an original reader because you know by the time you're reading this text that David already became king. And so the main question through 2 Samuel is, okay, how did David become king? And what's the plan for Israel after that? And in chapter 7, we see, as is mentioned in the video, that God plans to save the entire world through Israel by sending a Messiah. And then in this stage of God's redemptive story arc with human history, we know that Jesus, that Messiah, is coming back to finish the job in restoring and redeeming a broken and sinful world. If you want to stay true to God's plan for your life, you have to know that every single day of your life involves God unfolding his salvation plan to redeem and save the world. And that as Christians, you get to be a part of that plan. Sometimes we think too low, too low of what God can do in our lives. Or sometimes it can be really discouraging as a Christian, thinking that maybe God is not going to use me. God is not going to work in my life like he did with David. Um, if I'm given a sling and a stone, the chances are I would not slay some huge giant in some heroic fashion and make it into the Bible um, that, that we don't operate on a daily basis as though that's our plan for a, a general Thursday when you're going into work. But we miss the fact that God is unfolding his plan for salvation. And if you want to stay true to the calling God has in your life, you have to know that God is doing that work in you as a Christian and through you in his plan to redeem the world through Jesus' return. So as we look in the text, God initiates this plan and weirdly, the best thing that David does to save Israel is to do very little. In the beginning of chapter 1, we have this main question, which is, how is David going to become king? And all of a sudden, a young man named, uh, or of an Amalekite uh, um, origin comes to David, running up to David. We'll read it here in verses 6 through 10. I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man says, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and he saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me, Saul said. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew after he had fallen, he could not survive. 
And I took the crown that was on his head and the armband and his armband, and uh, he and brought them here to my Lord. So, if you guys have ever seen TV shows that kind of start with a previously on segment, do you guys ever watch a TV show? This is like before streaming services, where you'd actually have to wait a week before the next episode of a series. Like, just by show of hands, did anyone, did anyone in the early aughts get addicted to the show 24? You ever watch that show? Yeah. The beginning of every episode of 24. Well, the end of every episode of 24 was a huge cliffhanger. Some sort of bomb needed to be diffused. Somebody was kissing someone they shouldn't kiss. There was some sort of cliffhanger at the end of every single episode. And at the beginning of every episode was reminding you of the cliffhanger so that you could build tension. And the music was always, like, the most intense music they could ever put onto a TV show. And it'd be like previously on 24. And then like people would, I can't disarm the bomb. And then somebody would be like, you know, wiring or radioing into some sort of um, helicopter or something like that. Bullets flying. Again, people kissing. Lots of people sweating. And, uh, and it was always meant to build the tension so that the, but by the time the episode actually started, you were like ready to see exactly what Jack Bauer was going to do in this episode of 24. Well, there's a tension built at the beginning of 2 Samuel. Major questions for the life of David. Again, you're reading this already knowing that David became the most famous king of Israel that had ever been besides Jesus and besides God himself. And so you're going, okay, God, how did you do this? How did you accomplish this? How did you bring in the famous King David? And at the beginning of 2 Samuel, there's Saul, and he's still king over Israel. And Saul wants to kill David. And even if Saul does die, even if something happens where Saul does die, he's still got a 40-year-old king. His name is Ishbosheth. And then even if that guy dies, he's still got all kinds of other tribes of Israel who are loyal to Saul. And you're asking the question, how would it ever come to pass? that this little shepherd boy from 1 Samuel 17 that slayed David and Goliath by God's power would ever actually become the reigning king over all of the tribes of Israel. That's previously on Samuel. And we see immediately, obviously God is at work in the life of David because a man comes up, running up to David with Saul's crown and his armband in his hand. And he tells a story. Now, I'll admit to you, that David doesn't buy this guy's story for one second. I mean, he's, he's an Amalekite. He doesn't have an allegiance to Saul in that same way, although he's bowing down to David and claims to have done exactly the right thing. And, and you can even read the story. It sounds like a fake story, right? He's saying, like, the chariots were in hot pursuit, and I had to kill King Saul, and then I had to take the most valuable thing on his person, and then I had to bring it to you and then bow down to you. This guy is probably lying. David does not trust this guy. And it's easy in chapter one of this, in, in this stage of David's life, because people still recognize David is probably going to become king and that God is, has his favor on David's life. Now, this person is bringing the crown to Saul, saying, I'm going to give you this crown. I want you to become king. And then, by the way, can you throw some cash my way? Or can you give me a position of priority or a position of privilege or a position of power in your new kingdom? David can sense the ulterior motives behind this person, but even still, God kind of uses it in his plan. In a, in, a, in a book where the main question at the beginning of the book, 2 Samuel, is how on earth is David ever going to become king? Right off the bat, Saul's dead. David's main uh, barrier to becoming king and fulfilling his calling has now kind of been wiped away by God's provision. And then if you look in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, 
David does not put on the crown himself. David does not want to have any perception of impropriety or ungodliness by saying, oh, great, Saul's dead. I'll take the crown and I'll put it on myself and declare myself the, that God's reigning anointed king of Israel. He doesn't do that. Instead, in the beginning of chapter 2, he is anointed as king. In the course of time, it says in verse 1, David inquired of the Lord, should I go up to the towns of Judah? God said, go up. David asked, where should I go? And God said, Hebron. So David went up there with his two wives. We'll get to that in a bit. The uh, widow of Nabal of Carmel, in verse 3, David also took the men who were with him, each of them with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. The men of Judah came to Hebron, and they, they anointed David king over Judah. You'll notice a theme here in the, in the first five chapters of 2 Samuel that there's these people recognizing David's calling in his life and then constantly trying to put him in power in an ungodly way. It would have been ungodly to not respect Saul's role, King Saul's role over Israel as the anointed king, and it would have been ungodly for him to take that crown and just put it on. The perception, of course, would have been that he just can't wait to be king and he can't wait to assert himself in that role. Instead, he prays to the Lord, goes to a location where these people happen to meet him, and then they anoint him as king. But at this point in the narrative, he's just king over Judah. There are all kinds of other tribes of Israel that he is not king over. He's just king over this particular tribe. And then when people find out that Saul is dead, King Saul, the previous king over all the tribes of Israel, then the general of Saul's army elects and anoints Ishbosheth, Saul's son, to be the king over all of the rest of the tribes of Israel. This initiates in God's uh, people, the nation of Israel, a civil war. So let's do some application about trusting in God's plan for salvation. It's evident in this book, God has a plan to save Israel. It's evident that God has a calling on David's life. And if you want to stick with the, the calling that God has on your life, there has to be some trust some faith in Jesus as your Savior, but also Jesus as your provider and Savior on a daily basis. Sometimes we think of becoming Christians as, like, Jesus is your Savior at one point in life. You said a prayer, and you became a Christian, and then after that's just kind of a lot of religious hard work, and after all, that's what you got to do, but at least, it's a bummer, but at least you go to heaven. Like, that's a perception about what it looks like to be a Christian. But when Jesus is your Savior, and you put your faith in Christ, it's not a one-time thing. That belief of the gospel and trusting in Jesus is a daily process of living as a Christian. And a daily process of God kind of equipping and using you in whatever way that God wills in your life. Um, I wore this flannel in a very, for a very particular reason today because um, it's supposed to be like 90 gazillion degrees still, you know, like all of October it's been like 92, 93. But I went to the mall the other day and I bought this flannel uh, and I thought to myself, am I ever actually going to need anything cozy in Orange County or is it just going to be sandals weather like all year round? But I thought to myself, you know what? No, I'm buying something cozy because it will eventually get cold. And then on that day, I'll open up my closet door and I'll be like, I have a cozy flannel that's perfect for this 60 degree day. Okay. I tell you this because that is, I'm trusting, I'm, I'm using informed trust to believe that every December eventually it gets cold in Orange County and then you can wear pants and wear all your fall clothes. There is a step of faith though that I take uh, in that process. 
at some point through some weird European ideology or whatever in the Western church, we at some point were convinced that faith in Jesus is blind faith and that faith in Jesus needs to be blind. And then we even developed our own term for it, like a leap of faith. But that is a completely unbiblical conception. Faith in Jesus, maybe the best synonym, especially in our passage today, faith in a God who saves, faith in Jesus, is probably best described as trust. Not a blind leap of faith, it's an informed leap of faith. And David took an informed leap of faith, or an informed step of trust, in a God who saves. Let me just close this point out by saying, if, if that's your conception of becoming a Christian, know that there's all kinds of ways that we're informed about who God is and how God has revealed himself. Verifiable accounts of the life of Jesus and whatever it is, but the, the process of becoming a Christian is not just shut your brain off, become religious, and that's the right thing to do, but to turn your brain on, engage with how God has actually revealed himself in human history, the reality of that. And then the Bible asks you, to trust that God in the midst of your daily circumstances. And that's what David does. He's informed about how God has revealed himself, the promises that God has made, the miracles that God has done in his life and in the nation of Israel. And then with all of that information, he compiles it into the most uh, compelling conclusion, which is God is worthy of trust. And I'm not going to take that crown and enact my own will for myself. I'm going to trust God. And then in chapter 2, he is crowned. That was a long point, but uh, thank you for tracking with me. Let's move on to the second thing that we have to do if we want to stick with God's will in your life, which is to test your motives in all circumstances. David's motives are clearly tested in this passage, and it's important for us to question our motives, to kind of be aware of our sinful nature if we want to stick with God's calling in our life. So after Saul dies in chapter uh, 1, verse 23 through 26, David immediately puts out a public address to the nation of Israel and, and uh, talks about what a value that Saul was in God's plan for Israel. It says here, Saul and Jonathan, that's Saul's son, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain in your heights. It's worth noting here that as you read through the book of Samuel, first and second Samuel, you see David actually respected and honored Saul's role as the anointed king over Israel at every single step. Everyone else is trying to say, put a spear through that guy's chest. He's been trying to kill you for years. Or that guy took your wife away because David married Saul's daughter. And then when Saul got mad at David, he took his daughter, Michael, away. Like, okay, try and kill me. Fine. Okay. Take Hannah away. I'm going full Liam Neeson taken on you. Uh, I'm going to use my special set of skills uh, to wipe you off the face of the earth. If you try and take my wife away, you mix those two things together. I mean, like David had good reason to have like legitimate resentment and anger towards Saul. And at every step of the way, David at his best is a David that trusts God and trusts in God's plan for his life. And we see his motives here are, um, he has good motives. He's got kind of clean, godly motives. In the end of cha uh, chapter 2 through chapter 4, we see that once David becomes king, he starts that, it initiates that civil war between the rest of the tribes of Israel, God's people, and the tribe of Judah. 
And I can give you kind of a, a summary of some of this so we don't have to read every bit of the passage. Um, Saul's general, Abner, defects because he recognizes David, David's calling. And so he jumps over to David's side. And then that guy's name is Abner. And then Abner is trying to prop up David as king. But then David's general, Joab, has a resentment towards Saul's general. And then so Joab kills Abner. And then David puts out another public address to remind Israel that he mourns the death of Saul's general as well. So we see two different times in the passage that David's motives are so clearly for God and for God's will that he puts out a public address and actually shames his own general, Joab, for killing Saul's, uh, you know, his own enemy once he came to recognize God's will for David. So at every single turn, we see David honoring God's will for his life and trusting in that will. And then, (laughs) previously on, previously on, uh, and then uh, we have basically one more enemy that's getting in the way of David becoming king, and that's Saul's son, who without a general now is still reigning over the other tribes of Israel. And so two men get it in their head, like, this is our moment. We're going to kill Saul's son And we're going to bring that guy's head to David. And David will be so impressed by our military might and our boldness and ability to kind of prop up David into power that he'll have to honor our decision to assassinate the king Saul's son. So David's worst enemy here, the last final kind of barrier between him being king, gets killed. They bring his head to David, and David immediately says, okay, listen, I killed the guy who brought me Saul's crown to protect from impropriety, to protect my nation from ungodliness. What do you think I'm going to do to you who just assassinated in an ungodly way this other king? And so he kills those folks as well. Whatever it is, what we see in David's life here, at his best, when he's trusting God, he is vigorously fighting against anyone's ungodly motivation to try and use military power to try and use any kind of like uh, ungodly idea about what nations should be run like to try and put David in power. And he just like radically fights against those things in severe fashion. David's motives are clearly pure. Uh, And if we're going to do some application in our own lives, I want to warn you, the Bible is super realistic and honest about the fact that it is possible for people to follow God and behave well and have selfish motives the entire time. I mean, I know uh, from being around in a Bible study, and a Bible study is like actually less studying and mostly discussion. If you've never been a part of a Bible study, it's a lot of discussion and hanging out. And I've been a part, I've been long, a Christian long enough to be a part of Bible studies where somebody was controlling and kind of domineering before they became a Christian. And then once they became a Christian, they joined a Bible study. And they love to have their opinions heard, and they love to tell other people about how they should live their life. And so that same tendency towards control and domineering other people just made its way into Bible study. But now God gets to help me tell people how they ought to live their lives. And so that same desire to control people, that same desire to domineer and to be right and to be heard jumps into Bible study. And now the process of sanctification for someone like that has to be aware of the fact that like God needs to change that part of their heart. Good, Bible, good behavior. Maybe your doctrine and your Bible knowledge is perfect, but you're still using it for the motives of controlling other people. Let's, that's Bible study. How about evangelism? It's entirely possible to share your faith and to talk about Jesus with other people because you love convincing other people of your ideas. 
You love walking away going, man, I really won that argument. Or serving people at church and, and serving other people in your community. It's entirely possible to do the good Christian behavior, but to have your motives rotten to the core because um, you might be serving out of a desire to feel needed and just to feel wanted and have it be a self-serving thing. All of these things are problematic because when your motives are tested and it's required that you honor the Lord with your behavior, then you usually stop doing the right choices because they're not serving you anymore. I just appreciate the fact that God's word describes to us that it's totally possible to do all the right behavior and to have rotten motives and that that is a a common thing for people to slap God's will on top of their own will. So checking our motives in all circumstances. And then thirdly, I think maybe the most applicable discussion for this morning is that we have to target obstacles with courage. Without going into too much detail for the sake of time, David has two big obstacles once he becomes king. That there's a civil war that breaks out. And then secondly, once David becomes king over all of Israel, because all of David's enemies are now dead and gone, and all of the tribes of Israel circle around David and say, we recognize you as king. That's in the beginning of chapter 5. Now, he doesn't have any time to celebrate because there are Philistines who are still present in the, uh, the area of Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas where the nation of Israel is called into the promised land. So immediately David faces these huge challenges and he needs courage. And I just want to read these two verses for you in chapter 5, verse 18. It says, Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go back? Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I'll surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. Multiple times in our chapters, uh, first five chapters. David asks God's will for his life and then sits back and lets a God who saves deliver Israel. And then when God says, step into action, he immediately jumps into it. It displays for us the courage of David, the the courage that David exhibited. So what is courage and how do you have it? I, I can notice, though, that uh, it's not a topic of discussion for a lot of people these days. Like, we teach math in school and you might have kids or or even for yourself you kind of assume that like maybe some success in life is going to be being savvy with things learning to code having an idea that can be turned into a business that's successful or work ethic is really important whatever it is I've noticed that most cultures that live in America today don't talk about courage very often but the Bible talks about courage quite a bit, and, and we have examples of courage and discussions on courage and examples of failed courage. In David and Goliath in chapter 17 of, of 1 Samuel, we see like counterfeit courage with Goliath, and we see true courage with David as he trusts the Lord, and he says, God has uh, delivered me from the hands of you know, these large animals, and I've killed them with a sling and a stone, and I think if it's God's will, I could kill Goliath with a sling and a stone. And so he does that, and, and God delivers Israel through this thing, but David exhibits courage in that process. We don't talk about courage a lot. I think it's hard for us to define, hard for us to muster it up. I think we see in in, um, examples of courage in the modern world, it's mostly like adrenaline courage. Like I think most men live their life like, I'm not sure if I am going to learn to communicate with my wife, but I know if somebody walked into our house, I'd be like, 
you know, like we're always waiting for that adrenaline moment where I can finally exhibit what courage really looks like. But like the daily process of having courage and banishing fear and doing the right thing is maybe a harder process. Like we have examples of people who like lifted cars because there was a kid or somebody stuck underneath them and they had the courage to jump on some subway train rails and throw someone to safety and save a life. It's been on my observation that the adrenaline courage is pretty easy if you're willing to give your life, but the, the daily courage of banishing fear and making the right choices is a much more difficult process. Courage really is the power to do the right thing in spite of fears. And we see in David an example of true courage. But I want to make a point to close our sermon this morning. And I, and I hope you track with me on this because I don't mean to insult. You're not David. If I give you a sling and a stone and put you up against Goliath, you die every time. If I put you with the task of raising up to the, in the ranks of an ungodly military so as to take power and then turn it back around to God's will for a nation, you make the wrong choices every step of the way. In our sin, we're not David because David's not David without God's sovereign will shaping all of these different circumstances to eliminate Saul, to eliminate Ishbosheth, to get Saul to the crown, but give him the godliness to make the right choices. You're not David. And it would be a superficial, and for years I think Christians do this, a superficial reading of 2 Samuel to say, read this, be David, perform well, and if you don't, then you're just, apparently you're not going to be used by God in your life. David points us to a savior that is the true king of Israel. And when you read a passage like, like David and Goliath about David saving all of Israel through his weakness instead of his strength, because he's a small shepherd boy, that should point us to a, a truer and better David who saves God's people through his weakness and not through strength. David's life shows us that he, he trusts in God's ability to deliver and provide and to save God's people and it points us to a truer and better king who also, like in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross, trusts in God's will to save. Though he's nervous, Jesus needed courage. David needed courage. And it points us to Jesus as our Savior so that when we need courage, we're not just buried under the weight of the expectation to be courageous and just think positive thoughts and be like David and think like David and just assume that God is just going to like make everything easy for you, positive thinking and all that stuff. Instead, we're directed to point to Jesus to see that because of Jesus's courage, we can therefore have courage. Let me say that one more different way. When you are faced with the need for courage and you're fearful and you're anxious, your identity is in question, your status is in question, your money is in question, your approval of other people is in question, and you're fearful. The question you got to ask is not, can I be like David? But what has Jesus done on my behalf? And if that's true, that can lead me to be courageous. And so if, you're, if you fear a lack of security, then think about what Jesus has done for you and the future that he has provided for you as a saved, forgiven person who has heaven in store for you. Think about the glorious future that you have in Jesus and then let that change how much courage you have so that if your security or your comfort is threatened, you can say, that might happen if I step out in courage, but my future is secure 
in Jesus. If your status is threatened, then think on Jesus's courage in losing his status on your behalf so that now you can say, I, I can be insulted. I can lose my job because of making a godly decision instead of an ungodly decision. I can be shunned by some people because it's not popular or countercultural for the day. But think about the status you have as a forgiven, beloved son and daughter of God because of Christ. And let that give you courage. If you think you're not good enough or that your previous decisions and your mistakes have disqualified you from God's calling in your life, think about Jesus and the fact that on the cross he took on those sins. He gave you his righteousness, took away your sins, and now screw-ups like us can be used and called and empowered by the Spirit to live lives that redeem and save and change the world every single day. Listen, you're not David, but Jesus was David. Jesus was courageous on your behalf so that we can live every single day with that courage, not based on our might or our ability, but on his. And last example, if you fear rejection and you need courage to step out and live out your faith in your workplace, in your personal life, in the public sphere. And rejection or awkwardness is a difficulty. Think about the fact that Jesus was betrayed, rejected on your behalf to fuel you with the courage to step out. It's my conclusion that if we do that and we get good at doing that and kind of develop that muscle of trusting in Jesus and believing the gospel when you're afraid, who knows the kind of person that you could be? Who knows what kind of courage you could exhibit? My hope is that we look at the life of David in the first five chapters of this book and see that he did things that we can do because it's exactly what Jesus has done on our behalf. Trust in a God who saves. Purify our motives because our desire is to glorify a God who has saved us. And then looking at the obstacles and targeting with courage because of the reality of those implications of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Let's pray.